So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Ecclesiastes 4. Without the benefit of overhead projectors, um, I won't be able to put some of those verses I'll be hopping around to on the screen, so I'll do my best to kind of go through them slowly so you can hear, but you're going to want to have that word open in front of you so that you can set your eyes on the passage that we're going to be examining together. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We're going to be finishing out chapter 4 today, so verses 13 through 16 will be the focus of our sermon. Verse 13, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. And yet those who come later will not rejoice in Him. Surely this also is vanity and striving after the wind. Would you bow with me as we pray and ask the Lord to help this word sink in deep to our hearts and our minds today. Lord God Almighty, we seek fellowship in Your Word this morning. I thank You that You have seen fit to put onto paper true facts, declaring who you are and what you desire for us. There are many ideas floating around in this world about what kind of a God you are, about what is considered wisdom among men, but God, we know that you are the only true source of reliable truth, and so we come to your word today humble. We ask that you would open our eyes to it, that you would set our hearts upon it, that we would love your word, that even when your word corrects us, that we would not become bitter towards it, Lord God, but that we would rejoice in the refining work that your Holy Spirit is enacting inside of our hearts. We need to hear from you today, Lord God. We need to listen intently. We need to be ready to adjust what we are doing, how we are living, the ways that we talk and think, and even the dreams that we have for our future, so that they will more rightly conform to your will for us. And so I ask, Lord God, that you would help us to be free of error in the way that we think about you, Lord God. May your word do the, the, the important work of refining our theology and helping us to understand and celebrate you correctly. In the name of Jesus, we come to you, Savior. Amen. <clears throat> in a case study here in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, the preacher, uh, who is named Koholath in the Hebrew, tells a story of two individuals who at first seem like very different people, but who end up having a lot in common. The first we're going to look at this morning is this old and foolish king. He had ruled over his people for some length of time. We get the sense from the passage that there was likely a season in his life when the kingdom was happy to follow him. This older king's reign had spanned for many years, and so he did the job well at the beginning. In order to keep that role, in order to keep that reign sustained, he must have been faithful in his service over the kingdom. But that seems to be changing as the preacher of Ecclesiastes compares him to a different person that the people of the kingdom have come to prefer over him. Why is this old king described as foolish? It says very clearly for us in verse 14, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. The king's foolishness seems to stem from a stubborn heart that is overconfident in his own knowledge, in his own abilities. And so he has fallen out of favor 
with his subjects. The fact that he no longer knows how to take advice indicates that he hasn't always been a fool, right? There were times when he was able to take advice. There was a time when he did know how to receive counsel and was perhaps humbler in his assessment of what he knew and what he was capable of. But after many years in authority, this man who at one point put the needs of the kingdom above his own ego may have since bought into the hype of his own public approval. His success and longevity in the role of king has led him to grow comfortable and self-confident in his leadership role. He's no longer tuned into the needs of the people. He's now making decisions on his own without the benefit of councils, without taking into account the needs of those whom he governs. We can think of King David to a degree in this. We won't turn there, but you might remember in 2 Samuel chapter 11, after many, many pages of David's faithfulness to God described to us. He has been a good leader. He has been a good king. He has been serving King Saul until King Saul is, is killed in battle and, or actually commits suicide in the midst of a battle. And then he takes his role faithfully and leads the kingdom according to God's command. He, fights, uh, he fights off the, the enemies of Israel and secures peace for his kingdom. He governs in a way that is respectful to the Lord God. He puts an emphasis on the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle, these places where the Israelites are supposed to come and worship fearfully this amazing God who David understands is his strength and his wisdom. But a huge shift in the narrative of King David begins with a short little verse that reads, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. In other words, we read that David, in a time when he should have been in battle, now it's not like kings flipped to spring and said, oh, it's springtime, I better go fight another country. Yeah, that's not what was going on here. But there was apparently a condition in which there was a threat, and so a king who cared for his country should have been aware of that threat and engaged in defending his people. And instead of being with his armies, instead of being over it and present, we find King David resting in his own palace, in Jerusalem, experiencing respite for himself while his compatriots are doing the diligent work of preserving the people of Israel. This point in David's career as king marks a great shift. To that point, he had been really relying on the Lord. He had been intent on seeking after God's guidance and protection. But now he seems to be dropping his guard. He seems to be growing comfortable with his ability to lead. And so he's doing things more his own way. He's enjoying leisure. He's, he's letting himself slide. We can think about the author of the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, who in some ways did the same thing in the beginning of his tenure. He seeks the Lord humbly. God offers to give him some supernatural support in his kingship. And in wisdom, Solomon realizes he doesn't have the wisdom he needs to do the job well, and he asks God to provide that for him. And so in the beginning of his reign, he does a very good job of ruling wisely. But as his tenure um, goes on, and as the kingdom experiences peace under his hand, he begins to slide, he begins to marry several wives, he begins to amass for himself great riches, and, and begins to fill up his storehouses with gold. And we begin to see Solomon uh, not as faithful to the Lord at the end of his tenure as he was at the beginning. 
So though the details are not laid out for us concerning this older foolish king that we read about here in chapter 4, the wisdom that once made this old king influential and accepted by the people, it's beginning to fade. And along with that, his his public approval is fading as well. The people have begun to fix their attention on someone else, someone new and attractive in ways that the old king no longer is. When a person enjoys wide popularity and success, we may be tempted to believe that that person must be competent, that they must be trustworthy. If everybody likes that person, then they should be the kind of person you'd want to pattern your life after. But the preacher illustrates here that popularity and worldly success are not the traits which should really matter. So in contrast to this old king, we see another story. We hear about a young individual, one who comes from a very different background. He is described in verse 13 as the poor and wise youth. Now, who is this young man? Is he a figure from biblical history? Is perhaps Solomon referring to someone like Joseph? We know that Joseph was a man of of normal means. He went through terrible hardship and uh, overcame the odds to go from somebody who was literally sitting in a jail cell to just a short time later, somebody who was sitting at the right side of the king being an advisor and wisdom to that man, a man of great power and authority. So was he thinking about Joseph? He doesn't say that clearly here. Is he thinking about Daniel, a young man who was living in Jerusalem when Israel was overrun by the Babylonians and was then part of the exile, which was forced out of the Holy Land? He became in many ways a servant, and yet through faithfulness to the Lord and God's favor and blessing upon him, he rose through the ranks and became influential and became a strong voice in the nation of Babylon, a nation that was foreign to him. Yet they recognized God's blessing on the man. Was was Solomon here talking about Daniel? It doesn't say so explicitly. It is possible that Solomon, through his exposure to foreign powers and governments, we know that he married many different women from different countries and had alliances and pacts of treaties with other foreign leaders. Perhaps he had come across this actual historical scenario and was telling of it. It could be hypothetical. This, couldn't even, this could be a situation that's more of a parable than a true scenario where these two kings are swapping places. It could draw on the historical record of Israel referring to someone in their past that we do not have a biblical account of. We're not totally sure. But what do we know about this youth? We know that he is poor. Or at least he starts out that way. He is not from a prestigious pedigree which mattered in, in the eyes of the Jewish people, those who came from a strong family or tribe tended to be more popular amongst the people. He did not inherit great wealth, and as a young man, he's not been able to gain wealth and prosperity for himself. And yet we learn in verse 14 that this man who started as nothing became a very influential and important person. He rose to sit upon the throne of his nation. How rare is it for a person who comes from poverty to ascend to the ranks of king. It is quite rare. It was far more common for a person who grew up in courts of influence and leadership to take over for an outgoing king or ruler. I have no doubt that this man's ability to rise from common ranks was appealing to the masses who soon began to endorse him over the older, established king whose popularity was on the slide. There is something romantically appealing about an everyday person who identifies with the people rising up to power and becoming a well-loved leader. Kind of reminded me of a story that's been in the papers just the last week. There was a normal, average, everyday guy 
named Nathan Patterson. I don't know if you hear about him. Uh, he used to play baseball when he was in school, but he stopped after high school because, in his own quote, he didn't have a good arm. He couldn't throw hard enough. And it had been several years since he had pitched, but he was at a Colorado Rockies game. And as many of these stadiums, they have little side attractions for their fans to keep them busy because baseball is not always the most exciting sport in the world, I confess. <laughs> so if you're too bored watching the real game, you can go back behind the, the bleachers there, and there's a fast pitch place where you can take a baseball and just see how fast you can throw the ball. And you can compare yourself to these great pitchers out on the mound. And, and I don't know if you've ever tried this, but it's a humbling experience. I did this at a, at a Sacramento River Cats game one time, and I couldn't even touch barely 60 miles an hour, which is what we call pitiful. And, um, <laughs> and so this guy gets up, and he starts throwing the baseball, and he hits 93 miles per hour, 94 miles per hour, 96, 96. And his friends start videotaping him. They can't believe this guy's powerful arm. They're videotaping him, and then they post this to a, a social media platform that uh, is set on by a, a, a man who is trying to get unknown prospects known. And the A's, the Oakland Athletics, see this guy, and they sign him to a minor league pact. And so we don't know if he'll ever make it to the big leagues, but everybody wants to hear this guy's story because he's nobody. He's not a guy who's supposed to be a prospect. He's just some dude off the street who put his hot dog down and picked up a baseball and threw 96 miles per hour. We like to see normal people ascend to greatness because then we get to think and dream about the fact, maybe I could be great one day too. So who knows? Maybe next week I'll be pitching for the Rockies instead of preaching. <laughs> Very unlikely. Think of Jesus, right? Was Jesus rich? Did this one who was born in a stable, born to a carpenter, did he seem destined to take the throne of Israel? He was from a town of little consequence. You remember what Andrew said? I think it was Andrew. He said, what good can come of Nazareth? Right? He didn't have much in the way of earthly resources. And yet here is not only a king, but the king of all kings. To be clear, Je Jesus was never universally embraced by all the people. Those who had religious power and influence were threatened by Jesus and wanted to put an end to his ministry. But the fact that Jesus came from humble beginnings resonated with the common folks. It likely helped him to be well regarded by those masses, at least for a time. So in the story that we're reading about here in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, the younger man's poor origins work in his favor and add to his growing popularity. So as the old foolish king begins to wane in popularity, this young man who is rising above his condition, above his circumstances, begins to be beloved by the people. We also read that this young man is not only poor, he's also wise which is not exactly common for a man of youth. Now, to be fair, we're not actually told how young he is, but apparently this man who lacks financial resources abounds in other resources. He is great in intellect and in maturity. And we could probably deduce from the scripture of the older king's error as someone who would no longer take advice that we are meant to see this younger upstart as someone who was eager to benefit from the counsel of others as a contrast of sorts to this older king. We see in verse 14 that at one point the young man was even in prison. This could indicate that he was on the wrong side of the law at one point, which would make his ascension to the throne even more remarkable. Perhaps he learned a good deal from his mistakes and then parlayed that into a wiser mindset that would help him eventually attain to the throne. Or it could mean 
that the young man like Joseph had been wrongfully incarcerated, maybe even under the rule of that older foolish king who wasn't doing the job he once did. If that's the case, then being able to endure and overcome that injustice would be evidence of traits that the common population often admires and celebrates, patience and resolve and inner strength. So one man, the older king, is somewhat conventional. One man, the younger king, is somewhat unexpected. In one regard, this story could just be an illustration of the fact that God can use whomever He wants and often chooses the base things to shame the wise things of the world. We see it time and time again in Scripture where an unexpected individual is used for the great things of God. But the preacher doesn't seem to be describing the hand of God working in kings and rulers here as much as he's describing the ways and events of man as they occur apart from God, as they occur under the sun, as they unfold in a natural humanistic way. Solomon began this section by saying that the younger man is better than the older foolish man. In other words, we should favor his story, but that's not the whole picture. The preacher continues to tell us more details. Verse 15 indicates an expansion of focus as the preacher extends the moral, uh, the moral of the story beyond the two kings and on to all humanity. Let's look at it again. Verse 15, I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place, this young man who was gaining in popularity. And he sees him connected to all the people of the world. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. And yet, yet, those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. We see that there's more to the story. The preacher wants us to look beyond the immediate example of two kings and think of popularity and acceptance on a grander scale so that we will recognize the vanity of it. We are given a sense that the younger king is better, that he has acted in a way that has won the hearts of the people, and therefore we should favor him over the older king, but the preacher isn't giving us such a simple lesson. These kings are not the focus of what the preacher wants to teach us. They're only an illustration of it. As the younger man stands there soaking in the benefits of his ascension to the throne, Solomon reveals a dark reality to the situation. Like the old man that the young man replaced, this young man will not always be cheered for. He may be the spotlight right now, but there will be a day when just like the older man that he displaced, that people aren't so friendly to his rule and his reign. This younger wise king who came from poverty might be loved and applauded for a season, but according to verse 16, there are those who will come after him who will not see the merit that helped him to ascend to his position. It might be because they forgot his remarkable story, or perhaps because his greatest accomplishments were before their time, so they never really impacted these new people in the kingdom, or perhaps the allure of some newer, younger upstart will draw their attention away. What, what we're meant to see here, that if for whatever reason, whatever caused them to approve of him and lift him up for a time will not last forever. And before too long, he's inevitably going to be replaced in their hearts and minds by someone else who is more currently appealing to the crowds. Man is forever preoccupied with change never content with what they have. A hero only stays a hero for a season until they do something that falls short of the lofty expectations 
of the public and then they are cast aside. And the preacher identifies this also as just more vanity. Ultimately, what is popular with man is fleeting and unreliable and is destined to fade and be replaced by something that is new. Reminds me of a passage of scripture at the very beginning of the book of Isaiah in chapter 222 when Isaiah says, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is simply breath. For of what account is he? The nation of Israel had fallen into the habit of caring too much about what other nations thought of them, too much of what people thought of their, of their, their policies and their, their practices. What they needed to be focused on was what God cared about for them, what God's plan was for them. And so, Christian, let us consider the vanity of popular opinion and the dangers of allowing ourselves to be swept up with, with what is commonly held to be good instead of putting our faith and trust in what the Lord God and His infinite wisdom has revealed to us through His Word. We live in a world where we are constantly exposed to the powerful but ever-changing current of secular opinion. The verses that we studied in Ecclesiastes 4 this morning show the rise and fall of two different leaders. But should our focus and energy be spent on becoming great in the eyes of men? Is that what should matter to us? That we should do all that we can to ascend up the ladder like this young and wise man did so that more people will recognize our greatness and, and applaud our lives? What does God's Word tell us to do? Listen to David in Psalm 62, verses 9 through 10. David writes, those of low estate are but a breath. Very similar word to vapor there, right? Those of high estate are a delusion. See that contrast there? Those who are of low estate are a breath, and those who are of high estate are a delusion. Meaning that just because someone is a king, it does not mean that they are more significant than the person on the street. And just because somebody is poor, it doesn't mean they are necessarily more noble than the man who has attained to greatness. He says in verse 9, he continues to say, In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trusts in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Friends, the standards of men mean little to God. He is not judging us on our station or on our income or on our social status. He cares about much more substantial things. While men are so often caught up in what is superficial and deceptive, God is concerned about the inner being of a man or a woman's heart. That is what he cares for. Consider the fickle nature of the crowd on the first days of Holy Week. Do you remember reading about Jesus when the time had come for him to fulfill the prophecies that he had shared with his disciples and with some of the crowds? And so he and his twelve come into the city of Jerusalem and on that first day of Holy Week, we see them celebrating the, the arrival of this man that many believed may just be the king that Israel was waiting for. You remember, they, they stopped what they were doing. They shouted out hosannas to his name. They grabbed palm fronds and waved them in honor of him. They put their coats on the road so that he might walk into the city on top of their coats. They showed him great honor and favor. He was the most popular cat in Israel on that first day of Holy Week. And it only took a few short days for perhaps some who were even in that crowd lauding his arrival 
to turn on Him and to cry out, crucify Him. Give us Barabbas instead. A man who is a murderer and an insurrectionist. A man who is a threat to the peace and safety of Jerusalem. They preferred Barabbas over Jesus and demanded that Jesus be crucified. Our exposure to the wisdom of man often causes us to catch ideas that are not biblically defensible, but have been embraced by the majority of people in our society. They are popular ideas, so without even knowing it sometimes, Christians who live in a society where the popular opinion is so prevalent might start to let those concepts sink into their psyche. They might begin to think the way that those who have no relationship or true connection to God think. We hear about them so often and they are so commonly held by the people all around us that they might not actually be true, but we start to think the way that the people of the world think. We run the risk of being significantly influenced by those ideas. We might even follow along and live as though they are true. Recently, I've been uh, doing some personal studies uh, in the book of Malachi in the Old Testament. So if you'd like, put your finger in Ecclesiastes, but flip over to Malachi. It's the last Old Testament book, short book of prophecy. As with many of the minor prophets, the book of Malachi comes with a variety of warnings to the people of Israel. As the spokesman for God, Malachi's job was to tell them what they should already know, bring their focus back on where it should be on the Lord instead of the distracting things of the world. They need these warnings because they had been taking their covenant with God lightly and allowing sin to have a place in their lives. And yet the book of Malachi is interesting in that it directs much of its admonition, much of these warnings and corrections are not directed necessarily to all the people, but particularly to the priests and the Levites whose responsibility it was to lead the people towards God and, away, uh, and lead them away from the deception of the world. And so Malachi is bringing these warnings, these judgments, these woes, and he is specifically focusing most of the time in the book of Malachi on these religious leaders who are failing their post. So over the course of the book, as the prophet Malachi confronts the priests with their errors, these priests respond by acting as though they don't even know that what they were doing was wrong. There is a sense of, of dialogue here that we get in the book of Malachi where God will call out to the leaders and they will respond. Malachi will record the, the attitude of these priests and these Levites. And so we see almost like a back and forth conversation in the pages of this book. So in Malachi 1.6, God proposes a question to these priests and Levites. He says, if I am a father, where is my honor? In a sense, he says, why have you polluted me? And then the priests respond to him and they say, how have we polluted you? In other words, they're acting like they, they're surprised by this. How are we polluting you? I thought we were doing well by you, Lord God. How are we defiling you? And then God answers, by offering polluted food on my altar. You see, in the nation of Israel here, these priests had been accepting offerings from the Israelites that did not meet the biblical standards of the book of Leviticus. We are told through the law that was given to Moses that the offerings for sin needed to be pure. They needed to be unblemished. They needed to be a male from the flock. They, need, they needed to meet certain criteria and standards. And the Levites and the priests were compromising on those standards. They were allowing people to bring in their blind sheep. They didn't want to get rid of their good sheep, so they said, oh, I've got to offer something to the Lord. I'll just, this one's blind anyway. It's probably not going to survive. I'll give this as an offering to the Lord. Or a sheep that was lame. 
or a sheep that was so old that it wasn't any real good anymore anyway. They would offer that up to the Lord God as their sacrifice, and the priests and the Levites were letting them get away with it. They had allowed the lax attitude of the secular worlds that they were living in to impact the way they worshipped their God. They were willing to give an inadequate offering to their, their Lord. And God is calling them out on it. And then in Malachi 2.13, Malachi is now speaking to these priests and Levites. He says, Even though you weep when you come to offer sacrifices, God no longer regards the offerings that you bring or accepts them with favor from your hand. I'm paraphrasing there a little bit. The priests then respond to Malachi, and they say, But why does he not accept our offerings? Again, as though they have no idea that what they're doing is wrong. They're shocked to hear that they're not in compliance with the Lord, that he is upset with them. They've become so influenced by the secular world they live in that they're surprised to hear that they're falling short. They don't even know that they're failing him. And then Malachi says, Because you have not been faithful to your wives, but have divorced them. He's calling them out because they claim to worship the living God. They claim to be a people of covenant. And yet in their own covenants that they strike with one another, they don't care enough to stand by their wife. They don't care enough to stand by their husband. They are influenced by this world that they live in where marriage is just disposable. That's not a recent development, folks. That's been a struggle in the human heart for ages. And so here in, in, the, in the time of, of ancient Israel, you see these people influenced by the attitude of the world towards marriage. And so these Jewish people who are supposed to be a people of promise and covenant are quick to just break off their covenants with one another. And he's saying, this is not pleasing to the Lord your God. He is not finding favor in your offering because the offering you're giving is just superficial. It doesn't express the real attitude of your heart toward Him. It doesn't show that you truly desire to please the Lord God and honor Him with your actions. Because if it did, your life would match your offering. And then in Malachi 3, starting with verse 8, God said, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. Again, the Israelites. How have we robbed you, God? They want to know, what are they doing wrong? And God responds by withholding tithes and offerings. They had failed to give to the work of the Lord. They were not supporting the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple, which was so critical to the right worship of Yahweh. And so as children of the exile, these priests and Levites grew up away from the Holy Land because their fathers had been disconnected. They'd been disobedient to the Lord's command, rather. Israel the northern kingdom first, and then Judah later, the southern kingdom, had both broken God's commands so frequently and with such consistency that in order to shock them into realizing they needed to repent, God allowed their holy land to be taken away from them. This is what we call the exile. And those Israelite people then, when Babylon came and conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and laid it to waste and exiled the people out, they had to find a new place to live. They couldn't live in their tight-knit communities that were dominated by the Hebrew culture anymore. They had to go and find someplace else to exist. And where did they go? They settled into secular communities. They settled wherever they could. Sometimes they would try to huddle together as little pockets of, of, of Hebrew culture, but they were existing within the greater framework of secular nations. And so for 70 years, which was the amount of time that God had determined it was going to take to wake up Israel, for 70 years they existed away from this communal idea of God's people being a nation. And it wasn't until King Xerxes declares, the, the uh, emperor of the Persian Empire and the Medes, 
declares that it was okay for the Israelites to come back to Jerusalem, that they began to return. We read about this in the book of Ezra, the book of Nehemiah, and the book of Hosea. God calls his people back to Jerusalem. They begin to rebuild the temple. They begin to establish again what they had lost through their disobedience. But what did they bring back with them? They brought back with them many of those ideas that they had picked up on when they were living in these foreign lands, when they were exposed to the popular ideas of those who had no idea who Yahweh really was. The evidence is most abundantly clear in their failures to worship Yahweh properly according to the covenant promises that he had established with them. They're taking God lightly as if he isn't real by offering bogus offerings to him as a show of, uh, of, of religiosity instead of as an act of sincere honor towards him. They're making an outwardly religious showing, one that even looks heartfelt because of the tears and the emotions that they express during times of worship. But when it comes time for the law of God to govern their personal lives, such as keeping their promises in marriage, they're acting like the pagans and they're forsaking their covenants. They're talking a big game. They're saying that God's will is important to them. But when they have to choose between being faithful with their resources and financially supporting the rebuilding of Jerusalem, which had formerly been laid to waste, instead they decide they'd rather spend the money on their own personal comfort and they refuse to give their tithes to the storehouse. See, the world doesn't know the truth. So we, church, must be careful not to let the world define for us what is acceptable and good. We cannot allow what is popular and acceptable to the world to define who we are as a people. So friends, we need to learn to limit our exposure. One of the things we can do in response to this, a passage like this is recognize that we allow ourselves to be subject to the popular whims of the world far too often by putting ourselves in front of the, the avenues by which culture sets its standards. If we're wrapped up in watching TV constantly, and always listening to secular music, and always exposing ourselves to the thoughts and philosophies of the world, and we do that to the detriment of seeking out the Lord God, then whose voice do you think is going to become more loud in our mind? Who are we going to resonate with more clearly? We're going to, we're going to resonate with this world that we are stuck in. We're going to begin to think like the people around us who don't know God, instead of thinking like this God who has called us to be unique and set apart a holy people after His own name. We've got to let the people of God fix their mind on that which will never fade, on the unchanging word that He has provided for us. If we, want to, if we want to battle against this voice that is so prevalent that wants to pull our minds and eyes away from what God wants for us, we've got to be seeking the, the contrast to that deception. We've got to be in the word together. We've got to be assembling on Sundays to, to read His Scripture and to listen to right preaching. We've got to be seeking Him out in our personal devotion times and reading Old Testament and New so that God's declaration of what is good and true will resonate more closely with our hearts than, than what is being broadcast over the airwaves in our secular nation. And we've got to be willing to pursue a holiness that causes us to be set apart, that causes us to be different than the people that we live amongst. Friends, you cannot expect to be authentically serving the Lord God and living passionately for the things of His truth and still be popular with the people of the world. You can't expect to be both of those things. Let me close by drawing our attention to one of, the, I think, the most richest illustrations of that very fact. And it's found in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. We often hear this called the Beatitudes 
This sermon is largely a definition of what the people of God are going to look like. How are those who become true disciples of Jesus Christ, how are they going to live their lives? And how are we going to see fruit of God's work alive in them? And it begins with this section where Jesus calls his people blessed. And he calls them blessed for radically different reasons that people in the world think that people are blessed. So, not the rich in spirit are blessed, but rather, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who can recognize their poverty of heart because they are the ones who will seek to have the Lord come in and do something about it. Those who think they're rich in spirit, they're not going to seek the Lord. They're not going to desire his intervention because they think they have it already. Who is blessed? Not those who have lost nothing, those who have retained all that they love and care for, but those who mourn, those who recognize that there is a deficit in their lives, that that their losses illustrate again and again that the thing they need the most is, is Jesus, is God's provision over them. Who is blessed? Not those who are proud, but those who are meek and teachable. Not those who are bursting with righteousness, as the world would think righteous people are blessed, right? But Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who know they need more of that, and know that it doesn't come from a place within themselves, but rather that it comes from above. Who is blessed? Not those who cast judgment on others, but those who show mercy. Do you see how on every point, Jesus is calling those blessed who by the world's standards would not be blessed? The last one I think is is particularly telling. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 through 12, he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Think about that, friends. Can you call those the popular ones? those who are reviled and persecuted, those against whom the world utters evil things falsely against them. To follow after Christ means that the vast majority of the people in the world are not going to understand you. It means they're not going to golf clap your every decision to be righteous. It means they're not going to be really comfortable with your zealous desire to follow after the Lord in real and radical ways. They don't want you to be so different because that hinders them. They don't want you to just go along with the current, to be like everybody else. Can't you just be like a normal American? Christ doesn't call us to that. He doesn't call us to popularity. He calls us to care about what He cares about. So as we look at this example of these two kings, We're not called to be like the younger king and to make sure that we are wise and to make sure that we rise above our station, but rather instead we're to see that there is no real benefit to to being seen as popular by the world, to being embraced by the world, but rather our focus should be on pleasing the Lord God and doing what He has called us to do faithfully, even though that will cause us to be in deep contrast to what the world says we should be focused on. Let's bow for a moment in a word of prayer.